Uh, Andy's going to bring the word to us from uh, Exodus 14 and 15. And so I'm going to pray for him, and then I think he'll probably pray for you guys uh, as well. So let's come before this holy God who can part waters and do all sorts of amazing things, who is the one true God who is worthy of our praise. We come, we're going to come before him right now knowing that he listens to us and he answers our prayer uh, too. So let's come before him now. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because you are our Saviour and our Lord. There is no other but you. There are no other gods before you. You don't know one. You tell us in your word. Lord God, I bring uh, Andy before you now. Thank you for the work that he's done in preparing. Thank you for the things you've been teaching him. And I pray, Lord God, that you would empower him by your Holy Spirit, that we might hear from you very clearly through your word and that we might take and apply in our lives, Lord God, so that we might grow to be more like Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks, John. Good morning, everyone. Wow. So much coffee in this crowd. It's awesome. Um, We heard just about a proposal to a girl who's on drugs. I've had a cold during the week. So you're about to get a sermon on drugs. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Andy. I'm married to Kaz. We have three kids. Uh, That keeps me occupied out of work hours. I work as a lawyer. That keeps me occupied inside of work hours. And I'm not a pastor here. I'm not an elder. I'm not old enough to be an elder. (laughs) But if you're a regular, it's great to see you. And I've really loved being back together. And if you're a visitor, uh, whether you're online or in person, it's great to see you too. And I hope that you can uh, get a chance to meet. And if we can meet, that'd be fantastic. I hope you've gathered that at this church, we want to make a big deal about Jesus. We want to make a big deal about Jesus. He is the hero of not just your life, not just my life, not just of this church, but of all of history. And I hope that you get that today. And I hope that that comes through in the sermon today, in the passage that we're going to have a look at. Let me pray for us all together as we open Uh, Exodus chapter 14. Lord God, I ask that we would hear from you. We would hear from your word, not from me, not the things that I want to share, but the things that you want to share. Lord, I pray that it would hit us in the heart, that it would leave an impression on us in that place where we make decisions, where we form beliefs, uh, where we direct our life. Lord, I pray that we would see and that we would love, and that we would follow and obey Jesus. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a Saturday night. The phone rings, and the junior pastor picks up the phone, and it's the senior pastor on the line to give him a last-minute assignment. I want you to preach... Tomorrow morning, says the senior pastor. This is the sort of thing that Shabu would do to Josh. What? Tomorrow morning? He says, I've never preached to such a large congregation and I have nothing prepared. Nothing. What am I supposed to do? To which the senior pastor replies, just trust the Lord, young man. Just trust the Lord. He's in a panic. He goes down to the church, 
and he finds the senior pastor's big Bible on the pulpit, and he's flicking through it, looking for some inspiration. He finds some sermon notes in the Bible. He must have been left from something, and so he has a look at them. They're quite good. And so, feeling better about the situation, he decides that he will use them for the next morning's sermon. And with, you, with, the, with the senior pastor's notes in front of him, the young preacher very much impresses the congregation with a sermon that's packed with wisdom beyond his years. Later, as the congregation is filing out the door and he's being thanked by many, many people, the senior pastor comes to the young junior pastor and he says, do you realize what you've done to me? No. Those sermon notes that you found, they were my notes for tonight's sermon. (laughs) Now what am I supposed to do? To which the junior pastor replies, just trust the Lord. (laughs) Just trust the Lord. I didn't find these notes in Shabu's Bible. (laughs) But, But there are times when that instruction, that encouragement that we get from God's word, to just trust the Lord, it feels trite. It feels inadequate. It feels not enough. It feels sometimes like a cop-out from people who don't know what else to say. Well, I don't know what to say to you, so just trust the Lord, brother. Um, in this passage in Exodus, the stakes are a little higher than a last-minute sermon. A huge number of people have run out of Egypt and have run out of slavery, they're headed away. They're, they're, they're fleeing something terrible. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's chasing them down, and he has them trapped. They can't run away uh, from the Egyptians because it's either the desert that way or the sea that way, and they can't go back because that's where the enemy is coming from. So it's either get caught, die, or drown. It's not, a great, uh, it's not a great situation. It's kind of lose, lose, lose. They can't fight against the Egyptian army. They kind of have just no hope. It's literally hopeless. And when they cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, what have you done to us? Moses seems to say, in effect, just trust the Lord. It seems super spiritual and super not useful. But as the story unfolds, we see that that advice was not just trite words. It's not just a saying. It is actually God's command. And believe it or not, God did this on purpose. God engineered this on purpose. We'll see it in the passage. When God led the people of Israel to this position where they could do nothing to save themselves, when defeat seems inevitable, when their anxiety is off the graph, when they're contemplating going back, that's when they have no way to save themselves. That's when they have run out of answers to the question. That's when God can act to bring himself glory. That's when God says, well, if anything's going to happen now, you know it's not you. If anything's going to happen now, there is only one answer that could possibly be. This, this, if anything's going to happen that's good now, you know it, it could only have been me. 
And I hope that you're going to see from this passage that salvation comes from God alone for his glory alone. It's for his glory alone. We're going to have a look at the passage in uh, three sections. So I want you to open your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 14. We're starting in verse 1. And you'll see three main sections in this passage. Firstly, their position. Secondly, God's salvation. And then thirdly, their response. So we're going to look at their position, not just geographically. I'm not going to get an argument about what sea it was at. Their their position as, as to what circumstance they faced. Then God's salvation, then their response. But since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Exodus, we're going to do that thing that they do at the start of season two on a Netflix series. We're going to talk about what happened in season one and quickly give you a whirlwind through so that we land at the start of season two. So good to be at the start of season two. Jacob and his family came to Egypt because there was a famine. Unpleasant. God had arranged for Joseph to already be there in Egypt. Not only that, but God had arranged him to be promoted from prisoner to prime minister. And over a period of 400 years, God gave them a land, a land called Goshen, in Egypt, and they flourished. In fact, the people became so prosperous and so many that Pharaoh perceived them as a threat. And he said, you know what? I'd rather not have a civil war. I'll turn them into slaves now. God raises Moses from amongst them, and God arranges him to be promoted from a baby ordered to die to adopted by a princess. Moses grows up in a palace, But because he knows he's a Hebrew, he takes out revenge on an Egyptian who's beating up on a Hebrew. He kills the guy and he has to run. He's in the desert and God calls Moses to go back. To go back as God's spokesperson. And the mission is bring the people out of Egypt. No small thing. So Moses does go back, trembling. He asks Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, nah. Sorry, nah. And then we get an escalating war, the ten plagues. The stakes get higher and higher and higher as God pits himself one by one against the false gods of Egypt. Ultimately, the stakes get so high that Pharaoh loses his firstborn in the Passover. And finally, he's broken and he agrees to let them go. And the Israelites run. They've been told to be ready, and God says, go, and they go. And now they're fleeing Egypt. This is the big exit. This is the big exodus. Thank you. This is the big exodus. This is where the the name of the book comes from, the book of the exodus. God has taken them. Chapter 13 tells us God took them not on the coastal road, which was the most direct route into Canaan, because that would have taken them through Philistine. And God says, I don't want them to have to fight. They might get scared of that and turn back. So God takes them on the desert road. God has deliberately taken them this way to get to this point. And now in section one, having talked about where we're at and how we got here, now we're going to talk about their position. Having followed God's pillar of cloud... 
they find themselves in this impossible situation. There is only bad outcomes to come from this. It's lose, lose, lose. Desert, sea, or Egyptian army, which way would you like to die? Uh, You can't even flip a coin because you need three sides. I want you to notice that God deliberately led them to this place. It wasn't like he rolled his eyes and said, oh, look what you've done to yourself. They followed God here. In fact, if you look at the start of chapter 14, it says, tell the people to go back. God actually sort of said, look, I know you've gotten to this point, but I want you to come back a little and camp next to the sea. Now, it's a fair question to ask why. Why, why, why? Why would God allow this? Or why would God even make this happen? Why would God trap his own people? Why would God bring them into a position where it's drown, kill, or starve? It's a fair question, and it's a question that started to play on the Israelites' mind. In the absence of a clear answer, their minds start to follow a path of cynicism and fear and despair. Have a look at uh, chapters, chapter 14, verse 11 and 12. I've got it, says one very sarcastic Israelite. Moses works for the Egyptian Cemetery Commission. And they were running out of space. They were killing us at such a pace in Egypt that there was no graves left. And so he's brought us out here to create a mass grave. Thanks, Moses. I don't know why we're here, says another, but I didn't sign up for this. Remember when you came knocking on my door telling me that you're leaving? I said, I'm fine, leave me be. But no, Moses, you had to turn my life upside down, that little life that I had left, and you dragged me out here into the desert, into this mess, so that I can face, face death in a different way. If I had to choose Moses, I wouldn't choose this. I would have chosen that. Have you ever been in that impossible situation? Worse still, have you ever been in, that, in the situation where you're in a bad spot and it's because you did the right thing? You're in a bad spot because you did the right thing. You were honest, but now it's come back to bite you somehow. You were generous, but now you've been taken for a ride. You were obedient, and now you've ended up in a in a horrible place. It doesn't feel like blessing. I can't claim to be an expert on hardship or suffering, but I know this much. Everyone, everyone has their own story. Maybe the story for you is happening right now. Maybe it's current. Maybe it's recent. Maybe it's in the past, maybe it's a long way in the past, but you still feel the impact today. Why does God sometimes lead us into situations that seem or feel hopeless? A leader in the BSF class that I'm involved in told me a story of uh, losing his job. In fact, he shared that he had, he had lost his job and we prayed with this guy for many months uh, that he would find work. He's in the IT sector, and he, there was not really much work going at the time for him. 
He had told a number of his friends and contacts that he was looking for work. And after a number of weeks, someone called him and they said, hey, I've got the perfect job for you. He described the kind of programming that he'd be doing, the kind of technology that he'd be working with, and he said, yeah, wow, this does seem fantastic. Who is it working for? And then that's when the news came. You'd be working for a gambling company. Wow, this guy was really torn. He's torn between choosing unemployment or choosing to work for a gambling company. As a Christian, he knows that he, he couldn't bring himself to work for the good of a company that does so much harm. And yet his family needed income. This guy's got kids. He's got a mortgage. And, and he, as he told me this story, he said, Andy, I was crying my eyes out. I was crying, not knowing what to do. And I was so scared. He said, I had no answers left. I, I couldn't solve this dilemma. The only thing I could do was ask for God's help. And so... Tears running down his face, he turns down the job. He has to explain to his wife and his kids that he got offered a job and that he turned it down. And he waited, and he waited and waited, and he did eventually get a job. It wasn't a better job. He wasn't paying infinitely more. And as he told me this story, I said, what? What do you think God was teaching you there? And he said, it wasn't that if I wait, it gets better. Or if I wait, God's got something even more awesome than what I thought. He said, the lesson that I've been taught was this, that it was God's battle to win. It wasn't my battle to win. It was God's. God had the same purpose for the Israelites when he brings them out of Egypt. He didn't ask them to fight. He didn't ask them to fight the Philistines on the way to Canaan didn't ask them to fight the Egyptians, didn't even ask them to fight their way out. God did the fighting for them. He had plagues and he, he took Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh is broken. Each one of those plagues is escalating and demonstrating his absolute authority. And with the benefit of scripture, we look back and we can see that this was God's purpose all along. God's purpose At the very beginning, he says, I will bring myself glory. Exodus 7, 5, before it's all started, Moses had come back into Egypt and God says to Moses, you know what, when this is over, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and I bring the Israelites out. God says, ultimately, I will have my way but I will do it in a way that brings me glory, which makes the Egyptians think more highly of me than they did before. And then again and again and again in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, we get this refrain coming over and over. It's aimed both at the Egyptians and at the Israelites. It's This is happening so that you will know that I am the Lord, so that you will know there's no one like the Lord. There is no match. And then God tells Moses the same thing in chapter 14. He says, hey, I'm going to bring myself glory out of this. The Israelites are trapped. And God says, I will bring myself glory from this. I need to tell you that God hasn't changed. 
The God of the Exodus is the same God that brought them into Canaan. It's the same God that came in the form of Jesus. And it's the same God that dwells in you as if you're a follower of Jesus. And it's the same God who is God of this church and is God of the whole universe. He still aims and deserves to bring himself glory. God arranges things in our lives for his glory so that we think more highly of him. Now, I want you to not get this mixed up. God's glory is very different to your glory and my glory. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about the glory different, but the purpose of God getting glory is very different to me getting glory or you. It really means who's the hero of this story? Who's the hero here? Is Moses the hero? He had a staff. He got, did what he was told to do. But who gave him the staff? Who told him what to do? Who did the th- supernatural things that Moses couldn't do? God is the hero of the story. You and I are not the heroes of our own lives, even. Throughout the Bible and throughout all of history, God does this again and again and again. He brings people to the point where only he can be the hero of the story. It's so that when the story gets retold, there is only one hero. The story makes God look good and not you and not me. I want to ask you, whose glory are you working for? Whose glory do you work for? I'm going to tell you, this, this passage just going and got me right there because I find it really easy to work for my own glory. Let me give you some examples. Well done, Andy. Your team at work has performed exceptionally well again this month uh, and it's great, uh, it's great leadership by you and you lead by example. Uh, you're an asset to the team. That makes me feel good. Thanks for the great advice, Andy, says my client. I couldn't have done this without you. Well, yeah, that makes me feel good. Thanks for the great sermon, Andy. I know none of you are going to say that now. (laughs) Guys, those statements really make my day, right? They pump up my tires and I feel good about myself. But it's because it makes me the hero. It's because it makes me the hero. It, It feeds my pride. In my heart, I'm a proud person. I want to be the hero. But so often, God brings me to the point, and I'm sure you've experienced this for yourself, brings you to the point where you're not the hero anymore. You're saying, I don't know what to do. I've tried everything and nothing seems to work. I can't see a way out of this. Or you say, I literally can't do this. This is not possible. When that happens then only God can be the hero, and that's what he wants. On a scale of 1 to 10, I wonder what the story is right now for you in horrible points. Is it a 1, 1 horrible out of 10, 2, 10, 25? I don't, I don't know what plan God is working in your life. But I know that he's wanting to bring himself glory. He wants to be the hero. Now, before I move on from this point, I just want to caution about something. And that is about turning God into a Disney film. You might say, what do you mean by that? I love Disney. So do I. Um, In fact, we watched Aladdin 
with our kids for the first time, the original, the real, the genuine Robin Williams one. And Disney films are super predictable. You introduce the goodies, you introduce the baddies, they pit them against each other, and the goodies will always win. Uh, And you can tell your six-year-old when you're watching a Disney film, don't worry, it'll be okay, he won't die. It'll all work out fine. And in the 90 minutes that you've got, it will. God is not a Disney film. God is not predictable like Disney. Ultimately, yes, he will overcome evil, and he will once again rule the universe, But your life is not predictable like a Disney film. How he wants to do it, how he will bring himself glory, the methods that he chooses, whether he allows pain for a long time or a short time, that is all up to him. It is all up to him. He is sovereign in that. Remember whose glory he's working for? His own. Not yours, not mine. His aim is not to make my life comfortable. His aim is to bring himself glory. And so he'll do that the way he wants. And if you think he's doing it the wrong way, then you're kind of saying, I think I've got a better way, God. I know you're God and I'm not, but I think you might have missed something. It's kind of not our place. It doesn't make sense to tell God that he's not doing a good job of being God. And yet that is sometimes what we're tempted to say. Maybe God is defeating my pride when he brings me to these circumstances. Maybe he's giving me the ability to empathize with others that I know or maybe I'm yet to meet. Maybe he's just shaping my character. Maybe he's chipping away things that are not Christ-like. Maybe he's shaping me into more patience, more humility, stronger faith. More surrender. I'm speaking to myself here when I say this. Let God write the script. Don't hand him the Disney script and say, here God, this is what God would do. This is what a good God would do. Let him write the script. He's not working to your script. Well, in section two, we move on from their position to God's salvation. We see the script that God has been writing. And as God's spokesperson to the people... Moses gives the unthinkable command. He says, the Egyptians are on their way. Everyone stay where you are. Don't run. Don't fight. In fact, listen to this. Uh, Is it what? Verse 13. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Oh, thanks, Moses. Thanks for telling me not to be afraid. I was thinking of it for a while. But now that you've said not to, I won't. This is really counterintuitive. It's it's kind of, it would seem crazy, right? One commentator, just as I was reading, he poses this question. Can you imagine what it's like to stand still as the greatest army on earth bears down on you and every every instinct in your being is saying you've got to either fight or run you've got to either fight or run and yet God has told them do neither don't do the things that you think you need to do don't do the things you think you want to do do neither of those just be still for a second 
It, it strikes me that that doesn't really matter whether they f- fight or run uh, or stand still. It looks like they're dead either way. But God has brought them to this place and he says, stand still and watch what I will do. And then God does something amazing in this chapter. It's night time and God moves the cloud and the fire from in front of them and he moves it behind them. And God steps in between the danger and God's people. Not only that, the Bible says God made it dark here for the Egyptians and light here for the Israelites. God made it light all night so that they could go. Amazing. And then the next command from God kind of sounds contradictory. Did you notice this in verse 15? Then the Lord said to Moses, why why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Didn't we just get told to stand still? This seems kind of harsh. Be still, move on. God tells Moses to hold up his staff, that staff that he was given, and to stretch out his hand over the sea and divide the waters. Now Moses can do one and two. He can't do three. But God tells Moses what's going to happen. I'm going to gain glory right now. Now, I just want to pause on this whole standstill move on because if you read it, it kind of sounds a bit confusing. What is happening here? Which one are they supposed to do? The answer is both. But why the, why the whole, you know, why are you still talking about this? Get a move on. What's that about? A famous preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon had made a comment on this and it really struck me. And he says this, Far be it from me to say a disparaging word against the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But, beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season, and when, excuse me, when we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry, sit around, any longer. Our plain duty is is to carry ourselves into action. And having asked for God's guidance and having received divine power from on high, we must go at once to our duty without any longer deliberating or delay. He's basically saying, if you've asked God to help, then go on with his help. If you've asked God for help, go on with his help. That's faith. What is faith? It's trusting God. God, please help. And then acting with God's help. God tells them, be still. Trust me. Don't do the things you want to do. Don't do the things you think you need to do. Trust me. Okay, now that we've stopped, here's what I want you to do. Don't fight. Don't run to the desert. Walk towards the sea. Okay, that wasn't on my list. Faith is not an exercise in doing nothing. Faith is an exercise in putting your confidence in the right thing. Not an exercise in doing nothing. It's about putting your confidence in the right thing. And so, in obedience to God, stop, stand still, then they have a call to act in faith. Go and do 
this. Go and walk towards the sea. Moses, hold up your rod. Stretch out your hand. You know, obedience, parents, we teach our kids about Jesus and we bring God's word to them. But who, who can change their heart? Not you, not me. We have to trust God for that. There's obedience and there's trust. In obedience, I've got to work for my boss as if I'm working for the Lord. But that doesn't protect me from unemployment or bullying. I've got to trust. Obedience, trust. In obedience, I share the gospel with people around me. But that doesn't mean it will be received well. It doesn't mean it won't affect my relationships. That part I must leave to God. Obedience, trust. In obedience, we speak up in the political and the social arena about God's truth. Even though it's increasingly unpopular. And we don't know how people will respond. We've got to trust. In obedience, Moses holds up the rod. He stretches out his hand. And then he has to trust. Because it will only be God who parts the water. Moses can't do that himself. It may, according to one filmmaker, have looked a little like this. Some people think that's, for some people that's familiar, right? Those of you who have seen that picture before, you're all old. (laughs) There's a film that was made in the 40s, I think. Moses can't do that himself. Now, did this miracle really happen? There's plenty of debate around about that. You can debate the place. You can debate the depth of the water. Have I got time for I've got time for this. Let me, let me read this to you really briefly. There's a story told of, a, of a, a very liberal minister. When I say liberal, I don't mean he votes liberal. I mean he doesn't take the Bible literally any longer. And he's speaking in a black American church. And at a certain point in his sermon, he refers to the crossing of the Red Sea. And as they do in black churches, they all yell out, from, they heckle, right? But they heckle in a godly way. And so they yell out from the congregation. One old man says, praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep water. What a mighty miracle. I hope you like my black accent. <laughs> <laughs> but the minister doesn't believe in miracles, right? So he says condescendingly into the microphone, it was not a miracle. They were in a marshland. And the tide was out, and the children of Israel picked their way across in six inches of water. Praise the Lord, says the man, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. (laughs) What a mighty miracle. (laughs) Guys, I'm not here to debate whether this happened. I would encourage you, though, to not read your Bible so that you take miracles away. To read your Bible in a way that doesn't call for miracle means you have to work your way around a lot of things. In the same way that the Israelites could not save themselves from the Egyptians, you and I cannot save ourselves from the punishment of sin. And so in obedience, we have to turn to Jesus and then trust. There is obedience and trust. You have to trust God that he has dealt with the punishment of your sin because you can't do that 
And in the same way that my salvation is a miraculous work of God and God only, this salvation was a miraculous work of God and God only. They had to act in faith. It's incredibly uncomfortable. The other night, one of my kids came downstairs, right? I put everyone to bed, you know, done the whole, ah. And one of my kids comes downstairs, visibly upset. Instead of going off to sleep, they've been lying in bed thinking, and there's tears in the eyes. Wow, what's wrong? I said, and here's what the answer was. Voice trembling. I'm not good enough to go to heaven, Dad. I don't deserve it. He's absolutely confronting and absolutely correct. And so Kaz and I both had the same conversation with our child, you know, only minutes apart. And the conversation went like this. I'm not good enough to go to heaven, Dad. I don't deserve it. Of course you're not. Of course you're not. That's why Jesus died for you. (laughs) You don't have to be good enough. Jesus was good enough. Sorry for this. <laughs> and after putting them back to bed, Kaz and I had a little high-five moment. Like, hey, they're kind of understanding the gospel here. This is what it's about. Incredibly uncomfortable and absolutely true. This text gives us that same picture. Unable to save themselves, the Israelites are called to trust their one and only hope. There is nothing left. Salvation comes from faith alone, that trust and obey in God alone. He is the only hope left. If I don't believe that God is my salvation, I'm left to depend on myself or on someone else to do what they cannot do and to do what I cannot do. I get discouraged I get burdened by my own sinfulness, the regularity of my failure. If my salvation depends on me, I'm in a lot of trouble. If my salvation depends on me, I'm likely to doubt my salvation. But if my salvation depends on God, if my standing with God rests on Jesus' finished work on the cross, actually that's when I can have peace. I can be still. I cannot do the things that I think I need to do. Having faith in Christ means my security is in his abilities, his perfection, his power, not my own. And so God takes them through the Red Sea the Egyptians realize that God is fighting for them. There's this, this great reference in, uh, I, can't, I can't give you the verse, I haven't written it down, where the Egyptians chase the Israelites into the sea and God makes the wheels fall off. And the, and the Bible says, and it was difficult to drive. <laughs> no kidding. When I realize the security of my salvation, when I realize that it's God who delivers then I can praise God from a deep and grateful heart. This is not just lip service anymore. These are not just words anymore. 
I'm praising God not because he made my life like a Disney film, but because he's God, because he was all that was left. And I realized that it was more than enough. We can praise God for three things. We can praise God for who he is. We can praise God for what he's done. And we can praise God for the confidence that gives us to face the future. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. Moses didn't know the future. Only God told him what was coming. And listen to the snippets of Miriam's song and Moses' song. You know, Moses was the singer here too. He's a regular David. He does sheep. He does music. Listen to some of the snippets. Who God is. God is highly exalted. God is my strength. God is my song. He's become my salvation. He's my God. He's my father's God. God is a warrior. God is majestic in holiness. God is awesome in power. And he's not just up there being God. He's doing stuff. He didn't just do stuff in Exodus. He does stuff now. He does stuff in your life. He does stuff in my life. Listen to what Miriam and Moses sing. He has acted in majesty. He has shattered the enemy. He has thrown down the opposition. His breath has moved the water. The enemy boasted about what they're going to do, and God just breathed on them. He sank the boastful enemy. He unleashed his anger. He worked wonders. And what is the hope for the future? God will lead in love and in strength. Other nations will fear and tremble. God's opponents will hear about this. Have you noticed that in the Bible, God from this point on becomes known as the God who brought his people out of Egypt? He was known as the God of that salvation, that amazing thing, time and time and time again. Not just the Israelites, but everyone talked about the God who brought his people out. The truth of God's salvation gives us confidence and hope, not just for today, but for the future, the future that you don't know about, the future that I don't know about, that script that God is working, that I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to go for you. I thought I had my life sorted out, and God had a different script. And when his script and my script don't match, guess who's going to have to edit? <laughs> it's not him. He's not, ed- he's not going to change his script. I reckon if Miriam were writing this song today, in 2021, or maybe in some recent year, I don't know when this song was written, it would sound a bit like this song that we just sang before. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. I want us to sing it together. I want you to read the words as you sing them, and I want you to listen to them. Listen to the way they speak. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from a raging sea and I'm safe on solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I'm not saying that your life is is trouble-free now. I'm not saying that it will be trouble-free later, but there is solid ground under us because the Lord is our salvation. 